Hey guys, welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about the MLB finally returning, the NBA, what's going on with their bubble, the WNBA, what's happening with their bubble, along with NFL news and our best for last. Now remember, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts under the name Just In Time Sports Podcast. Tell your friends, sit back, and get ready to learn something. Alrighty guys, and we're back. And in today's episode, we're going to start off with Major League Baseball finally coming to an agreement on how to play their season. Now, as we know, the MLB season had not started. Major League Baseball was scheduled to open. They had their opening day right around when coronavirus took over the USA and ultimately shut down the NBA season. And Major League Baseball was scheduled to have their opening day somewhere around that point sometime in April. However, due to coronavirus, the league never got started, and they've been in a tiresome and honestly aggravating negotiation to get their season started. Ultimately, they agreed on a 60-game season, which is right around the number Rob Manfred originally said when he guaranteed there'd be a season. He said somewhere around 60 games. There was a rumor of a 40-game season, but that seemed too low. Uh, 60 games for a lot of baseball purists like Tim Kirchin and other people think that 60 games is too low. But like Dave guys are saying, like I've been thinking this entire time, something's better than nothing. And so in this season, players will get their full proration of salaries. I said that weeks ago. There's no way the players were going to take a partial percentage of already less than half of their salaries. They're not going to go from making $30 million to $7.5 million when they could make up to $12.5 million. They're going to fight for every single dollar they can make. And ultimately, the players got their full proration of the salaries, which was something Rob Manfred had to do if he was going to force a season on the players, which is ultimately what he ended up doing. Camps will open July 1, and then the season is starting to start somewhere around July 23rd or July 24th, as reported by Jeff Passan of ESPN. We're not exactly sure which date they're going to select. Now, some changes. Obviously, we have the 60-game season, so that creates a lot of urgency. The World Series champion last year was the Washington Nationals, and through 60 games, they were 27-33 and 33 and would not have even made the postseason. Now, we're looking at some of these great teams. Some even call them super teams. We've got the best Yankee team, in my opinion, in a decade, led by Aaron Judge and Stanton picking up Garrett Cole in the starting pitching rotation. In my opinion, this is the best Yankees team, like I said, in a decade. You've got the Dodgers adding Mookie Betts with Clayton Kershaw. Maybe Kershaw's problem has been in the postseason. It could be wear and tear. Well, now, instead of making up to 30 starts in a normal 162-game season, he makes 12. So his starts will be a lot lower. Maybe his arms are a lot fresher, and that velocity doesn't fall off. His control remains to where Clayton Kershaw can be as dominant as some guys would call him Sandy Koufax when Sandy Koufax was in his prime. They're going to add a runner on second base starting in extra innings. So it's not a situation where, you know, the, you see in college football in the third overtime, you know, you have to go for two if you score a touchdown. Or so other leagues have had different ways to end the game so they were not playing forever. Baseball has never instituted that. They are just play until at the end of the inning, one team has more than the other. So routinely, we'll see baseball games going until 1 in the morning in the playoffs or 12 o'clock in the morning and during the week and fans having to drive home. And that's a risk that fans take 
if you go to a Wednesday night game, let's say for Houston, and the game didn't end until 11.30, 12 o'clock, that started at 6.30 or 7, when well, now you're driving home, you're already fighting traffic, trying to get out of the stadium, then you gotta drive home, by the time you probably get settled, it's one in the morning, and you're up again at six in the morning for work, you're tired for work, along with all the other things that can come from that. Also, the game moves really slowly, especially when no one's scoring. A lot of times in extra innings, guys are taking big chances, they're striking out, and the game's not really moving past 3-3 or 4-4. I mean, the game is stuck at those scores. So to counteract this and to help alleviate some of the speed of play, they're going to put a runner on second base starting with the 10th inning. Not exactly sure if that's a pinch runner situation where you can just call anybody off the bench and they go to second base to run or whether it's batting order situation. So if you were the last guy out, do you go to second? I mean, I think that would be interesting. So you don't really mess with the batting order. So let's say, you know, it'd be a managerial decision. If Mike Trout is up to bat, but you have a very talented player in front of him who's slower, do you sub the guy out for the risk that, okay, if Mike Trout strikes out and then we end up not getting him to home, now there's not as good players in the field. He could commit an error, lose the game, but this is something that managers will have to take an account for. We've seen the manager in baseball's role get greatly reduced since the advent of analytics. I mean, to the point where the lineups are being handed in by guys who work in the front office because of the numbers against this pitcher versus this side of the plate and this space. This should be the lineup for maximum performance. We've seen a lot of the managerial decisions being taken out. I mean, some managers now are basically position coaches where there were former players who are really good at hitting. So they are glorified hitting coaches. I mean, we've got guys that honestly only real job is to be the face of a franchise and take blowback when something goes wrong. Since those analytic guys in the front office are usually nameless and faceless, the casual fan doesn't know him. Like, for instance, in Houston, we know Dusty Baker, but he's going to be the face to take a lot of the brunt. Let's say if Houston starts playing bad because of you know the cheating scandal, and even the truncated season having to speed up for 60 games, that could be a problem. Then Dusty Baker takes the heat on that, even though he's probably not deciding much, if anything, in the organization or having final say. Besides in-game substitutions, you know, shifts are probably predetermined. I mean, you've got a lot of things where the manager used to do and then used to get paid a lot more or pay a lot more in comparison because they had so much decision making before analytics took over the sport. But in regards to the season itself, I think this could be a major fix and a major change for baseball. Urgency is something baseball has lacked in the regular season for years, especially with the more modern fan. My generation personally is the Twitter generation where we grew up with highlights. We had SportsCenter with highlight packages. You know what plays really well on a highlight? Big dunks, late game threes, a touchdown with two minutes left and then a two minute drive that Chris Berman can do a whole game in two minutes. Stuff like that, football and basketball was made for TV. You've got soccer highlights with a great bicycle kick. You've even got car racing where you can show the last 10 laps on TV and they'll play really, really well. Or you'll see even drag racing where you can show a race. The whole race takes 30 seconds from the start to the finish of the process. One race takes 30 seconds to a minute, depending on how the drivers are treating the Christmas tree. So we've got things of that nature. You've got baseball, which a game can take four, five, six, even seven hours sometimes. We had a game a couple years ago go six hours and 40 some odd minutes. 
no other sport is going to go that long because of the clock. I think the longest football game last season was a hair over four and a half hours, and I think they had an overtime in it. So when you've got a situation like that, baseball is, is an untimed sport. You have to get 27 outs on each side. Lord forbid you go to extra innings, then it's another three outs. Plus you have to be ahead, otherwise you just keep going through the cycle. So I think adding the runner on second, having 60 games, it creates a sense of urgency. You could go on a five game losing streak and be out of the playoffs or fighting for your life to even get a wild card spot. Whereas opposed to when 162 games, you lose five games, that's like losing one in football or like losing two in a row in basketball in terms of the percentage of games because you can lose 62 games in baseball and still have a great season. So the sense of urgency is going to be greatly increased. I like the rule changes in terms of adding the runner on second and extras, in terms of a universal DH, so we're not having pitchers bat. Uh, in terms of having expanded playoffs where even though more teams could get in, it's still going to create an urgency because, like I said, you can't go on a five-game losing streak and be like, oh, it's just a bad week because a bad week now could end your season. And so I like what baseball decided to do. I'm a huge fan of this. I am so glad to be back. As a Yankees fan, I'm very excited to see what this great team can do. I think some of the advantage for a great team like the Yankees and the Dodgers was taken away because you don't have as much time to see, oh, we could use a reliever, let's trade a couple of pieces that we really don't really need for a great reliever and finish the team. Or if Stanton and Judge's bats go cold for two weeks, could the Yankees end up out of the playoffs where over the course of 162 games, they'll just ultimately wear down worse teams. Teams will lose the will to fight late and you never know what could happen. They have to have great weeks. But at the same time, for those great teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers, the Astros are still a very talented team. Those guys could get hot over a month and push so far in front of everybody who maybe not have an average month. They can win 10 games in a row. Very possible. And all of a sudden, they're secured the number one seed and they're destined to play in the World Series or whatever form we may have it. So ultimately, I am very excited about this baseball season coming back. Admittedly, I might be more excited just the negotiations over. It was stressful. They were fighting over a half percent or a percent in terms of the total revenue sharing pot. And I'm glad that this is resolved. I'm glad that baseball is coming back. It will come back July 23rd or July 24th. A final date has not been set as of this time, which is about a week ahead of the July 30th or July 31st comeback date for the NBA. So we'll have a lot of pro sports on at one time, which is what usually happens during the summer. You get opening day around April, right around the end of the NBA season. So those two sports normally overlap. And this would be very good for all of the major sports. We have live sports back on TV in about a month, people. We got about a month and they will have our live major four sports back. I'm very excited about that. And speaking of the NBA, we will now transition to talking about the National Basketball Association. What's going on with their bubble we will also include the WNBA. What's going on with their bubble? And we'll be back after this short break. Alrighty guys, and we're back. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the different basketball associations and their bubble in regards to the WNBA and the NBA. So the WNBA, I start off with them. As we discussed last week, they're going to play their regular season and their playoffs all at the IMG Academy in Florida. 
So this academy is well equipped to handle the situation. They'll be playing a similar schedule to what they do now. They'll be playing three times a week, which is a little bit more than what they do now. But it'll be close to a facsimile of what they're going to play. And being that there are only 12 teams and they're playing 22 games, you'll play everybody twice. So everybody has the exact same schedule. There's no strength of schedule advantage for the East. No strength of schedule advantage for the West. And then considering that they have completely unconference playoffs where they see one through eight, you don't have to worry about, you know, oh, because the East was weaker, you have five great teams in the East take up a spot from a good Western team that had to play a harder Western conference schedule because everybody's playing everyone twice. Now, several of their stars, or several of their players, rather, have decided to not participate in this season for various reasons, including childcare concerns and social justice issues. Now, an ESPN reporter uh, was on Sports Center not too long ago and stated that the WNBA is allowing children to come inside the bubble because it's going to be a very long time. Think about it. We're playing 22 games plus a playoff. So if you win a championship, that's several months that you'll be without your child. I know that's impossible for almost anyone. So they're allowing children to come inside the bubble for mothers and they're allowing a child care person to come in with you. So a, a caregiver. So that could be, you know, the WWE players' husbands. That could be their spouses. That could be their parents, aunt, even like a licensed nanny or something. But they are allowed to come inside the bubble to care for the child while they're doing the games and film and things of that nature. So the WNBA players had an issue with their bubble because they were given final details yesterday, being Wednesday. And they were told to alert the league whether they were playing or not today, which is Thursday. Um, and that was really, really short notice. Several of the players took issue with that, even going to the point of saying that they might have their own schedule. Where even though the league may be saying that we need you guys to tell us by today, within you know 24 hours basically, it's really hard to read through documents and to fully understand, to fully process the thought that you would need to make a decision to let's say you have children that you decide you're not going to bring in the bubble to be away from them for several months, possibly. Or if you have significant others, they're not allowed in the bubble because they're not a child caregiver. So if you have a spouse and you don't have children with that person, they're not allowed in the bubble because you can't pass them off as a child care, a child caregiver. So when it comes to things of that nature, that's a really tough decision. I am sure that the WNBA can't hold someone's feet to the fire because several of these women have social justice initiatives. So if they decide on Friday, or Saturday that they would rather fight for their social justice issues than go in the bubble and be away from the front lines of the action. I'm sure the WNBA can't penalize them for that. I'm sure that's something that the WNBA would understand. Even if they have concerns about the spiking cases of coronavirus in Florida or children's health or family health or any of that nature, I'm sure the WNBA cannot penalize them for that at this time. So when you have these growing concerns for the WNBA, in order for them to properly execute their bubble, it is not out of the realm of possibility, but we can see several more players decide to opt out for social justice issues, family issues, or things of that nature, which are all completely understandable because it's not like the NBA, where the NBA has eight games left and then they're going to run through the playoffs. Now, granted, that's going to take several months as well, but it's not for the promise of a championship. So it'll be a little harder for a, a very talented player on a championship team like a Chris Middleton or 
even a good role player from the Clippers like a Montrez Harrell, Patrick Beverly, to decide to sit out because they have a very good chance at the championship, along with the financial differences in the WNBA and the NBA salary structure. Now, speaking of the NBA, there has been several pullouts from the bubble in Orlando. We have Trevor Ariza, who decided to do visitation with his son. No problems with that. None at all. He did the right thing for him and his family. We have Avery Bradley, who has decided as well to sit out because his child has struggled to get over respiratory illnesses and sicknesses. And considering coronavirus is a respiratory illness, he decided that the health of his children would be better, especially considering his child would probably not be allowed in the bubble because of the issues with respiratory problems. And so we've had other several guys test positive. We've had Jabari Parker, we've had Nikola Jokic, we've had Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Hill all test positive for the coronavirus at this time to the point where Nikola Jokic cannot even enter the country for another few days from Serbia because he contracted it overseas. And so obviously that is a major concern. Now, where is also the big concern now of soft tissue injuries. They're getting more guidelines on how to do training camps within that nature. Several players, including Jared Dudley, have expressed that the injury rate will go up. Patrick Beverly hilariously responded that basketball is a year-round sport, so there's no excuses. But that is true. Basketball is a year-round sport. But at the same time, in the middle of a season, when you're ramping up your body to get ready for a playoff run, especially in Jared Dudley's case, a deep playoff run, then all of a sudden you stop for four months. Regardless of what you say, you can't stay in basketball shape, not playing basketball, not playing, not playing competitively five on five. Sure, you can do individual workouts, but a lot of these guys didn't have access to full courts, didn't have access, obviously, to 10 people in the middle of this thing to get runs in, didn't have access to even goals in some cases. You look at Trey Young when he was doing the horse competition in his parents' backyard on what seems probably the goal from his childhood. You have the hilarious story of Steph Curry having to run to the store to build a goal in his driveway so that he has somewhere to shoot. Not everyone has a setup like Mike Conley or Chauncey Billups, or we've seen LeBron and Ben Simmons recently getting together for runs. Not everybody can do that. And so when you've got guys concerned about soft tissue injuries, even telling them, hey, you're going to have three weeks of training camp and a few scrimmage games, and then boom, we're going to drop you in the end of a regular season. And then two and a half, three weeks later, you're going to be in the first round of the playoffs. That's a lot to ask. Obviously, these guys are professionals, and these guys are used to having the summer off. Let's say your team doesn't make the playoffs. Well, you're done in August. You don't play again until September, October. I mean, you're used to having several months off, but if you're a guy like LeBron, you were in the finals every year for eight years in a row. You were used to not finishing your season until June, having a couple months off and ramping it back up for a regular season. The Warriors were doing the same thing for a little while there. And so a lot of these veteran guys that are in this year's playoffs are used to just playing nine, 10 months out of the year, having a couple months off and ramping it back up. We look at Kawhi Leonard recently doing that. And so I'm worried about the injuries in terms of a guy like Kawhi Leonard, who was already playing every other game, or it felt like every other game, but he was missing no back-to-backs. He would take a game off every couple of weeks. How does his body feel, especially his knees? How do they feel after taking four months off, not doing five-on-five basketball? Does he go down in the first round? Or does he have a sprain? Paul George is a little beat up. I know he had time to heal, but you go into a season limping, 
You usually come out of a season limping regardless of how long a break is in between because your body never truly heals because you're staying at the top training. You can stay because you never know when the season's going to come back. And so you've got guys like Zion who may have even had a great advantage for the Pelicans because he was listed as an injured player. So he was allowed to go in the team facility all the time. Uh, several people in the organization have said that you're going to be shocked by Zion when he comes back. I'm not sure if that means he's lost 10 pounds of baby fat or whether that means that he's going to be even stronger and more explosive and ready to go because he was allowed in the facility the entire time because he was rehabbing and fixing an injury. Now, with the advent of these possibility of injuries and the spiking of the coronavirus in general, uh, several fans have decided that it may not be worth finishing the season. I strongly disagree with that. I vehemently disagree with that because if that happens, as we've discussed before, the owners trigger the force majeure, basically tearing up the CBA, which is a collective bargaining agreement, and deciding that, okay, we're going to go for all these new things to make up for our losses. Billions of dollars is at stake here. In my opinion, it would take a outbreak through the league. Several star players would have to get it. I'm talking Giannis, LeBron, Kawhi. Honestly, Paul George could probably catch it and they'll keep playing basketball. It would take several star players, maybe Zion catching it, Luka, in order to even begin to affect the decision-making of the NBA to not finish the playoffs. I mean, I think the NBA, in order to save a few billion dollars, is willing to asterisk the season. And in order for the players to even have a semi-facsimile to what they're used to, they're going to have to play this season. If the force majeure is triggered, Stephen A. Smith has reported several times on First Take that he spoke on to several executives, including a couple of owners, and they would be coming for a hard cap which would greatly reduce the amount of money an NBA player can make, especially at the top, because a lot of times the super mass contracts are like exceptions. So it's something that you can go over the cap for because that person has bird years, that person has this award and that award and this championship, and they can go over the salary cap in order to achieve, in Giannis's case, in a couple of seasons, a five-year, $250 million contract. If there's a hard cap, that super max tanks. So you can get 35% of the salary cap as a Supermax player or 30% salary cap as a Supermax player. But if it's not the soft cap, which could be 30 to $40 million more than the quote unquote salary cap, if it's not 35% of the luxury tax, then that number gets greatly reduced. We're going to be talking five years 180 instead of five years 250 because if they come for a hard cap, there's no more exceptions. Burry years don't matter. The rules rule doesn't matter. Um, Supermax contracts don't matter because the percentage changes. So automatically now Giannis may only be worth 30 to 35% of your luxury tax bill, but now he would be worth 30 to 35% of a greatly reduced number. And so building around him would be harder. It'd be harder to get great teams to come together. Honestly, if I was a small market owner, a small market general manager, I would be rooting for the season to get canceled. It sounds harsh, but if the season gets canceled, my owner kicks in the force majeure, all of a sudden there's a hard cap. Now Memphis and these smaller market teams, New Orleans, Phoenix, some of these teams like Orlando have a shot at free agents because it used to be, well, if I'm going to go to a smaller market, not so great of a city, at least I get all my money if I stay home. Well, now, if everybody's money is the same, but let's say 
you're locked into this contract for this team and the Lakers up against the cap and the Clippers are stuck. Now Giannis may be forced to go to an Orlando if he wants to leave or a situation where he tries to grab somebody else to make a great team. A negative situation that changes free agency. But all in all, I think the NBA season will get finished. There's too much money at stake. There's too many finances at stake. And honestly, we need basketball. I know several of the players talk about the social justice issues. I don't think that'll be a problem in the bubble. Uh, the NBA and the WNBA, for, to their credit, have put in paperwork and put in discussions about how they would allow and even help and assist and promote people's social justice issues and what they want to do in their causes. And so I think that's a great help to get several players to agree that may not have been on the fence about it. They can come in now, do their social justice work, and still play basketball. So that's huge. Um, cannot wait for the WNBA and the NBA. Again, we'll have all our sports back. We'll have WNBA, we'll have NBA, we'll have baseball all at one time. And up next, we'll shift to the NFL with some news going on there. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. So in this segment, we're going to be talking about the NFL and how they're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic in terms of making money. And also, we're going to talk about a few of the big names in the league and how they could be resurfacing, changing locations, or even playing football again. So first, we're going to start off with the NFL owners voting to allow tarping of the first six to eight rows of every stadium and to be able to sell advertisements to put on those tarps. Now, the reason why the first six to eight are very important, are so important, is because those are pretty much shown almost at all times on television. So you see the first few rows. Think about your favorite NFL game. At your favorite team, you see the first few rows of the stadium pretty much at all times, whether it's sideline, whether they're showing an end zone cam, whether it's a touchdown, you pretty much see the first few rows of every stadium all the time. Why is this important? Because not only are you selling advertising space, you're selling pretty much three and a half hours consecutive advertising. Now, if you do an end zone, probably a little cheaper for an advertiser, considering that that's only really there during a touchdown, an overhead shot. And if you do a sideline, that's probably most expensive because you'll see that every time the camera's pointing that direction. So for three and a half hours, it'll be there at least half the time because half the time the game's going one way, half the time the game's going the other way. So if you get a sideline view, session somewhere near the 50 or one of the more popular areas where the ball tends to be, then obviously you'll pay a little bit more for that. This is crucial for the owners because the owners are recouping money or attempting to recoup money from the loss of fans. Now, I think this could end up being maybe not a permanent change, but definitely something that owners with fan bases that aren't as passionate could look into. We've seen before Oakland left the Coliseum, but they were struggling. The Chargers couldn't draw fans to their stadium. The Rams usually always have attendance issues. Most of their fans end up being fans of other teams. And we've got, you know, Jacksonville talked off part of their stadium, although the upper part. And what if they decided to just shift the crowd up six to eight rows? Most of the average fans can't afford those rows tickets anyway. So shifting the crowd up six to eight rows and sticking an advertiser in there, even if you do it in the end zone 
or you do it in one section of the sideline where you just shift everybody up, you can sell a very crucial part of real estate for TV advertising and make even more money. But I think it's a great way for owners to attempt to mitigate the lack of fans in terms of financially and TV viewing wise. Because seeing a bunch of empty seats would be a little weird. It's going to be weird seeing a bunch of empty seats in the camera at all times. Although personally, as a football savant, as a football guy who studies, I will be constantly studying the field and trying to figure that out. But, you know, you see the crowd when they score a touchdown. You see the overhead shot of a stadium like the Raiders new Allegiant Stadium with the logo in the seats and the big comfortable seats and how it looks like the front of a car on the outside. That's going to be weird seeing it empty, hearing it empty. The hits are going to be louder. Everything's going to be more amplified. I'll be very interested to see sideline coverage. They won't be yelling. They won't be yelling over a halftime show or fans. They'll just be talking in the booth like I am currently right now talking about this podcast, just talking. And so selling those advertising rights on the tarps are going to be a way to alleviate some of that visually because you'll see State Farm or you'll see Coke or you'll see Nike or someone like that on the sideline instead of a fan, which will still be a different viewing experience, but it won't be nearly as jarring as 10 rows of empty seats. Now, in regards to player news, Dak Prescott signed his $31.4 million franchise tender. I think, despite what a lot of people think, this is a great move by Dak Prescott. Most think that he gave up his leverage. Now Jerry doesn't have to pay him. Well, like I said earlier, the salary cap's probably coming down due to the lack of fans. It could be up to $80 million. So instead of the cap going up, it'll come down. Why is this important? Because Dak Prescott signing for $31.4 million is a $31.4 million cap hit this season. It'll be something the Cowboys have to eat. We probably take some out of Jamal Adams, who we'll talk about a little later. But it's something that the Cowboys just have to eat this season. Okay? So the Cowboys have one or two options now. They could either sign him to a long-term deal at the risk of the cap coming down. Or option number two, they allow Dak Prescott to go play all season without a deal and go through this same situation again next season. Why is that something that Dak doesn't really care about or he shouldn't care about? is because the franchise tag number for next season is based on this season. Next year's calorie cap number for a franchise tag of Dak Prescott is a hair over $37 million. Regardless, the cap could tank by $100 million, but due to the NFL rules, Dak Prescott's franchise tag number of $37 million is based on a percentage of this year's number for the franchise tag. So regardless of what the cap does, his franchise tag number does not change from $37 million next season. If I'm Dak, I'm not really rooting for a deal. Obviously, if Jerry blows you away with a five-year, 190 with 150 fully guaranteed to do it signing, obviously, you take the deal. That's the deal you're looking for. But if you guys aren't getting anywhere near the number you want, play for the franchise tag. If the cap bottoms out, he either has to tag you or has to let you walk and let you go get your own money somewhere, in which case you pull a Kirk Cousins. You sign a short-term deal, most of it, if not all of it, fully guaranteed, and then you shoot for free agency again once the cap comes back up. In my opinion, Dak Prescott's in a perfect spot here. He's guaranteed his spot next year on the Cowboys. He's all but guaranteed his spot next year on the Cowboys, and he's guaranteed that he will be one of the top five paid quarterbacks in the league in both of those seasons. I think it was a good move by him. 
I don't see what the negatives could be outside of not having financial security. But I think $68 million all but guaranteed in two years is pretty financially secure. So I think it was a good move by him. And now we're going to talk about Jamal Adams. I don't know how this is going to go. Usually I'd like to have a good opinion or I do have an opinion. I think he'll be out of New York. But I don't know where he's going to go. He Obviously, he has his list of demands and he's made no qualms about wanting to be a cowboy. He grew up in Texas. He grew up a cowboy fan. He's made no issues about wanting to be a cowboy. We saw the fan video. Well, it's like a Snapchat video of him saying, I'm trying, bro, in terms of trying to get to Dallas. He's put out his list of teams through Adam Schefter. So at this point, it will be up to the Jets to move him. Now, there's reports coming out that management, ownership, players are not fans of Adam Gates. And I find that a little hard to believe. Mainly because, not because I don't believe that he's a pain to work with. He's had that reputation for a while. But if a billionaire doesn't like you in his organization, he can just fire you. The buyout shouldn't be a huge problem to the Jets' ownership. They're billionaires. Buyout of $30 million, you pay it, you move on, and you hire a great coach that you like. Or at least a coach that you like. You don't have to hire a great coach. It's your prerogative, but a coach that you like. So I find it hard to believe that Ownership, it maybe is against him. Ownership did give him a lot of power when he first got there. And ownership chose him over the general manager at the time and fired the GM and then hired a GM that Gates could control or had a lot of influence over. So, again, I find it hard to believe that ownership was anti-Adam Gates. But regardless, Jamal Adams' relationship has ultimately started with the Jets. I think it comes down to contract. I think if they had offered him the money that he was looking for at the beginning, he would sign. I think if they offered him his 18 to $22 million a year right now, he would sign with the Jets and remain for a Jet for a long time. But ultimately, he feels disrespected. He wants out. He wants to go to a contender. I think that's his right to pursue that. Now, the Jets have not granted him permission to seek a trade. And if I'm the Jets, I wouldn't. I have you under contract this year. I have you under contract for the fifth-year option next year. And I have two franchise tags. So theoretically, the Jets could control his rights for the next four years. And Jamal Adams either have to play for the Jets or don't play football, which is a risky proposition in the National Football League because anything can happen at any time, especially with basically the fourth and the fifth year on his rookie deal being the only things they would owe him if they decide to pick up his fifth year. They would owe him the fourth and the fifth year, but then they can let him go if injuries slow his career down. Now, a couple of interesting notes. Antonio Brown and Josh Gordon appear to be on their way back into the league. Josh Gordon applied for reinstatement, which actually this could be the time he sticks because the NFL doesn't suspend or punish for marijuana drug testing anymore, which was rumored to be the reason why Josh Gordon kept failing drug tests was that he was smoking marijuana and getting busted by the National Football League. So it appears to be he's on his way back. Several teams have been connected to him, notably the Seahawks. Also, we have the Seahawks being connected to Antonio Brown, who's drawn interest from the Seahawks and the Ravens. I believe the Ravens have been connected to Josh Gordon as well, as they look to try and give Lamar Jackson a true number one weapon. Hollywood Brown, in my opinion, is a great two. But if he's your one, your receiving core isn't nearly as talented as it should be to win a Super Bowl. I think Baltimore has a top three roster in the league. However, in order to maximize their Super Bowl window, I think they need to get a number one receiver and getting a guy like Antonio Brown would be that number one. 
I'm not sure how much Josh Gordon helps you. We've seen him recently, especially with the Patriots. He didn't help Tom Brady a whole lot. Had a couple of moments, but it was nothing where you think, oh, that's Flash Gordon from the Cleveland days. Not even close. Last we've seen Antonio Brown, he was all over the field making plays. He had a great opener with New England, and then he was out of the league, obviously, for legal issues. So we'll have to see if either of those things come to fruition. I'd be more interested in seeing an Antonio Brown on Baltimore and a Josh Gordon on Seattle more than vice versa. I would like to see both of them back in the league. They both deserve to be in the league. They're both talented enough, and we'll see how that happens. And up next, we'll be shifting to our best for last. Alrighty, guys, and in this week's Best for Last, we're going to talk about the incident with Bubba Wallace and NASCAR. So, just for a quick backstory, a rope garage pull, which is how you pull down a garage, you know, like the little string that hangs in most people's garage, was fashioned like a noose. Uh, Bubba Wallace did not see it. A member of the Richard Petty racing team saw it and reported it to NASCAR, all the way up to the highest chain, even to the NASCAR president. And an investigation was done. Um, Bubba Wallace never saw the noose. He never reported it. He was not involved in any way. He was just told about it. Uh, His emotions came from the support that he obviously saw and felt from his fellow drivers who pushed his car to the front. And they even had hashtag I stand with Bubba in the infield. Uh, Bubba Wallace spoke about a new group of African-American fans. He could tell they were a new group. Of fans changing his name when he got out of his car and he was very moved by that and very touched by that and very happy that nascar is bringing in new fans um even at the concern of what's going on with him go back to the incident the rope was fashioned like a noose the fbi got involved in search of a hate crime and concluded through their investigation that the rope was fashioned like a noose but they can find video and photographic evidence of it being there since October. Now, if this was there since October, why was it not taken down? Obviously, it was seen because it was a garage pool hanging from the ceiling. It was in plain sight. You can see it from the outside and the inside. So if this was there the entire time, why wasn't it reported? Why wasn't it taken down? This could be the culture that NASCAR is trying to shift away from. They've gotten severe backlash from fan groups about the removal of the Confederate flag. Even one plane flying over the race with a Confederate flag saying defund NASCAR, which is a clear shot at the defund the police movement that's been happening along with Black Lives Matter. So obviously they've got a fight on their hands. I don't begrudge NASCAR for coming out with such a strong statement against the news, not knowing fully that it's been there since October and not knowing that it wasn't apparently targeted at Bubba Wallace, but they came out in strong support of Bubba. They came out in strong support of the movement. They came out in strong backlash and they condemned whoever did it and they condemned the act itself. I'm proud of NASCAR for that. I understand they're in a terrible position right now in terms of monetarily. They're losing fans who supported them but want to fly that Confederate flag. They're losing fans under that. And they're also trying to navigate the waters and not be late to a party where Bubba could be in danger or that he could be the target of hate crimes in the future. But ultimately, I want to thank NASCAR for coming out so strongly as they did. 
I want to thank Bubba Wallace for constantly using the refrain that his smile will not be taken away, that his joy will not be taken away, and that he will constantly be there to be an advocate for change and to try and win races. Thank you, NASCAR, for your response. Thank you, the FBI, for coming out so quickly and having a quick investigation. So ultimately, I want to thank all those guys for doing that. It was a great thing to see not only that Bubba will be supported by NASCAR as a collective in terms of management, but that he will be supported by new fans like Alvin Kamara. He will be supported by drivers and he will be supported by the media and other athletes as a whole, as guys like LeBron James have alluded to, that everyone should stand with Bubba and stand with what he's fighting for in NASCAR. But that will conclude this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. Again, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, subscribe. Don't forget to follow the Twitter at JTimesports. I repeat, at JTimesports for breaking news and updates and anything of that nature all in one place. You know, I do baseball. I'll cover NCAA football, big news, NBA, NFL, WNBA, all in one place. So, guys, make sure you follow that. Uh, Tell your friends about us. And we've been doing this for three months solid now. So we'll come out weekly. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.